Believing the message of salvation is not an end unto itself. It is only the beginning. We are not merely saved from sin, but we're also saved for God's glory. God's glory is commonly revealed in genuine Christian community. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Today we continue the Message of Salvation series by seeing what the characteristics of the people of God are and how they should be demonstrated on a daily basis. Well, Phil, today our listeners will notice a shift in our attention. We've been talking about how a person becomes saved, but sometimes that can lead people to believe that Christianity is focused on the individual alone. Well, that's right, Mark, and I think that's so important for us to understand in our culture. People talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's right. It is a personal relationship, but it's not a private relationship. We're not just Christians on our own. When we come to Christ, we are brought into a Christian community, and we want to look at the biblical characteristics of that community in today's message. Well, is the kind of community you're talking about difficult or easy for a Christian to experience? Well, Mark, I think in our culture particularly, it's difficult to experience. America is a very individualistic country. Frankly, most of us lead very selfish lives. Many of us don't even really know our neighbors very well. We love our own privacy to be in our own homes. But Christ is calling us to be part of a community where we know people and are known by people and experience their comfort, encouragement, sometimes their correction. But it's not a life that we're leading all on our own. We're called to a living fellowship with the body of Christ, Christian community. And we'll be encouraged by that, I hope, in today's message. Thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and hear God's Word for us today. A few years ago now, we took a trip to Israel, and one of the most interesting places we visited was the southern wall of the Temple Mount. We discovered that the southern approach to the old temple in Jerusalem was dominated by a series of magnificent steps made of white limestone and running the whole width of the Temple Mount. During the major Jewish festivals, these steps would have thronged with pilgrims, would have paused near the bottom for ceremonial cleansing and then proceeded up to the top of the steps and then poured through giant archways and out into the temple's outer courts. In all likelihood, it was from these very steps that Peter preached his famous sermon on the day of Pentecost. We find the story of that sermon in Acts chapter 2. I encourage you to turn there as we study the passage. Jews from all over the world had gathered to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. And they had been amazed to hear Jesus' disciples declaring the wonders of God in their own languages. And when they demanded an explanation, Peter gave them the message of salvation. He gave them the message we've been studying in this series of sermons. Peter promised that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you want a summary of his message, you can find it at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this, Jesus. There you have the message 
In a nutshell, Peter preached the perfect, powerful life of Jesus and the suffering, bleeding death of Jesus and the liberating, invigorating resurrection of Jesus, followed by the glorious, victorious exaltation of Jesus. This is the message of salvation, and it's all about Jesus from beginning to end. As the people heard this message, they realized that they were sinners who needed to be saved. And when they asked what they should do about it, Peter gave the answer that salvation always gives. He said, there is nothing you can do except believe, because salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And Peter pleaded with them that they might save themselves, and they did save themselves. It turned out to be the sermon that saved 3,000 souls. But that is not the end of the story. This will come as a surprise to anyone who thinks that salvation begins and ends with making a decision for Christ. Certainly a decision for Christ is necessary. A decision for Christ must be made because salvation comes through faith in Christ. There is much more to salvation than praying the sinner's prayer or going forward at some evangelistic rally. Believing the message of salvation is not an end in itself, it is only the beginning And we are not merely saved from something, namely from sin, but we are also saved for something. And what we are saved for is God's glory. The last five sermons we will have in this series are all about the results of our salvation. They are sermons about being saved for God's glory. And the key Statement tonight comes in Acts chapter 2, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. You see, to be saved means to be saved into this new spiritual community. Last week we were talking about the way that all God's sons and daughters are adopted into the family of God. And you see, there is this one family of God. Christianity is not a life alone, it is a life together. There is no such thing as private Christianity. Somehow it has become popular to think of religion as a private matter. I think, for example, of Thomas Jefferson, who said, I am a sect to myself. Or of Thomas Paine, who claimed, my mind is my church. Or one thinks of the countless men and women in these postmodern times who claim the right to make up their religion as they go along. But if you say, my religion is private, then whatever else may be said about your religion, it may not be said that it is Christianity. Christianity is personal, of course, because it involves a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but it is not private. Now, as we confess, whenever we recite the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the communion of saints. Now, what was it that these first Christians had in common? Well, the answer is everything, or at least everything that really mattered, because they shared in one common salvation. The plan of salvation was never intended for isolated individuals. Whenever the Bible speaks of God's saving plan, it invariably uses the plural because God's plan has always been to save a people for himself. The message of salvation is 
not about personal salvation as much as it is about a salvation that all believers share in common. Consider some of the aspects of salvation that we have been studying. Every one of them is for all of God's people. We all have the same need of salvation because we are all sinners. And we have all been saved by the same grace together. We have been chosen since the foundation of the world. Together, we have been reconciled to God. Together, we have been adopted into His family. And so when Christ died on the cross, He died for all of us, atoning for all our sins. And when He rose from the tomb, He rose for all of us, gaining eternal life and winning our entrance into heaven. The reason we have everything in common is because everything that God has ever done to save any one of us, He has done to save all of us. Since the apostolic church in Jerusalem shared all of these things in common, it's not surprising that they did practically everything together. They studied together. They worshipped together. They prayed together. They celebrated the sacraments together. They ate meals together. This glimpse we are given of their life together here at the end of Acts chapter 2, brief though it is, reveals all of the marks of a healthy church. And we're going to consider four of them. These Christians became a learning, a caring, and a worshiping community that was growing by the power of the Holy Spirit. First mark of the saved community is that it is a learning community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, verse 42. And it's not surprising that this should be mentioned first because really everything else depends on God's Word. The way we learn how to care for one another. The way we learn how to worship God in spirit and truth. The way that we learn how to share our faith is all by studying the Bible. The apostles were the messengers of salvation. They preached salvation in Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures, and they preached it from their own eyewitness experience of Christ. And we ourselves find their teaching in the pages of the New Testament. And the church has always been strong when the Christian community has devoted itself to this apostolic teaching. And the converse is also true, that the church has always been weak when that teaching is neglected. Think, for example, of the Middle Ages. The single greatest cause for the failure of the medieval church in Europe was not its bloated bureaucracy or its immoral clergy or even its faulty doctrine of salvation, as serious as those things were. Now, ultimately, the church was in decline because the Bible was on the shelf, By contrast, for all of the blessings that came through the work of the Reformers, all of the theological blessings, all of the liturgical blessings, all of the spiritual blessings, really the single greatest cause of the Reformation of the church was the discovery of God's Word. Luther's Reformation was made possible by Gutenberg's printing press. Or to take another example, consider the rapid and alarming spiritual decline of the mainline Protestant denominations in America during the last century. In part, this decline was brought about by theological liberalism, also by political pragmatism. More than anything else, the decline was caused by a failure to submit to the Bible's authority as the inerrant and infallible Word of God. 
We should be reminded from these things that the church in the 21st century will only be as strong as our devotion to the apostles' teaching. Being devoted to their teaching means believing in the authority of the Bible, means accepting the Bible as the very word of God, the only rule of faith and practice. It means believing in the sufficiency of Scripture, trusting that the Bible really does have all the answers that we need for the work of the church and the problems of daily life. Being devoted to the apostles' teaching is not simply a matter of having the right ideas about the Bible. It also requires personal Bible study. It means reading the Bible every day. Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. Read them book by book and chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Read the Bible over breakfast. Read it during your lunch break. Read it the final thing before bedtime. Follow some systematic program for Bible reading. Read the Bible in a year or use some daily devotional guide. Consult the notes in a study Bible or even read a Bible commentary. But whatever you do, read the Bible. Reading the Bible also includes reading it in public worship. Reading of Scripture is disappearing from many churches, perhaps because it's considered too boring for a multimedia age. Being devoted to the apostles' teaching means reading God's Word in public worship. It means returning to the public reading of God's Word, and we do well to follow the example of the Puritans who, in addition to the sermon, enjoyed, and I do say enjoyed, a long Bible reading with comment in their worship services. And then finally, being devoted to the apostles' teaching requires a return to Bible exposition as the foundation for all of our preaching What the church needs most is preaching that simply explains what it is that the Bible teaches. Now, the church in Jerusalem was not only a learning community, but it was also a caring community. These Christians devoted themselves, this is again verse 42, to the fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, which in its most basic sense means sharing. So, for example, the writer to the Hebrews reminds us to do good and to share koinonias with others. Often the word is used in an explicitly financial sense. And so Paul said concerning the Philippians, out of the most severe trial, their joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing, there your word for koinonia is, sharing in this service to the saints. The contemporary church seems to have forgotten the costliness of koinonia. For us, the word fellowship means chatting for a few minutes before a worship service, or maybe playing volleyball at a church picnic or having coffee and a pastry during the fellowship hour, usually actually only half an hour after church. Now, all of those things may encourage fellowship, but they are only the beginning. The kind of fellowship the Bible is talking about is not a superficial friendship. It is a deep, personal commitment, the kind of commitment that can only be made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit. True koinonia comes 
with a price tag. It requires costly investment in the spiritual and material welfare of your brothers and sisters in Christ. We can see what this looked like in the early church if we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 44, which again uses a form of the word koinonia. All the believers were together and had everything in koina, in common. The Scripture goes on to explain exactly what it was that they held in common. They Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. You see, because the first Christians shared a common salvation, they also shared in one another's lives. They took care of one another. As we discover in verse 46, they even opened their homes to one another. Now, Christianity is not a form of socialism. This church in Jerusalem was not a sort of commune. In fact, the first Christians continued to own private property. One indication of this comes in verse 45, where the verbs selling and giving occur in the imperfect tense. It's a tense that you use to indicate occasional action, not something that you're doing all the time, but from time to time, as the need arose, the first Christians sold their possessions and gave their money to the poor. And this is confirmed at the end of Acts chapter 4, where we are given a fuller picture of the kind of koinonia that the Christians practiced in those days. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Picking up in verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. Think of that. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. You see from those verses that they still had possessions, but they didn't really think of them as possessions. They thought of them as something that belonged to the Lord and for his work. So the true Christian economy is not forced communism in which members of the church are compelled to give up their goods against their will. Nor, I must add, is it greedy capitalism in which Christians pursue selfish gain for their own ends. No, rather, it is compassionate koinonia in which each member freely dedicates everything that he has to the service of God and to the benefit of his neighbor. And to a remarkable degree, the first Christians entered into the joy of this kind of selfless fellowship. They understood that all of their possessions belonged to their heavenly Father. And if they belonged to Father, then they had to be shared with the rest of his children, their own brothers and sisters. And thus they made this radical commitment to Christian community. Whenever the church has understood what it means to be saved by grace through faith, it has always become a caring community. It was true here in Jerusalem where the believers became one in heart and mind. It was true in Asia where the Gentile Christians raised money to relieve Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, Christians they had never met, who were suffering from famine. The church was a caring community in the fourth century when The emperor Maximinus issued an imperial decree driving Christians from their homes. Eusebius describes the great suffering that Christians endured in those days. Not long afterwards, there was a severe famine 
throughout the empire, and there was pestilence in the villages and death in the cities. Eusebius describes wealthy women going out to beg for their bread and grown men falling down to die in the streets. No one cared. No one cared, that is, except the church. Eusebius writes, the heathen everywhere beheld a striking proof of the piety and universal benevolence of the Christians. Amidst calamities so numerous and so severe, they alone exhibited in substantial deeds the offices of mercy and humanity. They daily employed themselves partly in protecting and burying the bodies of the dead. For innumerable multitudes of whom no person took care died every day and partly in distributing provisions to all the indigent in the whole city that were pining for hunger, whom they collected for that purpose. The consequence was that this was extensively talked of and divulged, and all men highly extolled the God of the Christians and confessed that they alone had proved themselves in deed and in truth the sincere worshipers of God. The church was a caring community in Geneva during the Reformation. The hungry were fed. The ignorant were educated and the sick were nursed back to health. As he labored in that needy city, the pastor, John Calvin, made it his particular goal to raise in each member of the Christian community the spiritual problem of his material life, of his goods, of his time, and of his capabilities. In view of freely putting them at the disposal of God and neighbor. And when we hear these examples, surely we want to ask ourselves this question, what are we doing to put our goods and our time and our capabilities at the service of God and of our neighbors? Being devoted to the fellowship means adopting the girl left behind at the orphanage. It means sitting beside the man dying from AIDS. It means caring for the elderly rather than simply forgetting about them. And in these days when the globe has become a village, being devoted to the fellowship means extending our care around the world. It means praying for our brothers in Chinese prisons. It means perhaps redeeming our sisters from slavery in Africa. It means sending relief to God's children in famine or earthquake. This is simply basic Christianity. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. The answer to John's question is that God's love cannot be in him because true Christians are devoted to the fellowship. Now, the third mark of healthy Christian community is worship. These first Christians devoted themselves, chapter 2, verse 42, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So the church was a learning community, it was a caring community, and it was also a worshiping community. And here we have two elements of public worship. We have the sacraments and we have prayer. The first Christians broke bread together. It means something more than that they were sharing a meal together. Now, the Bible speaks very specifically of the breaking of bread, and therefore means very specifically the Lord's Supper. Also, in the original Greek, although this is somewhat obscured in the New International Version, it speaks of the prayers. 
which was the standard Jewish expression for the set prayers of God's people. Really, to say that they were devoted to the prayers means that they regularly attended public worship every day, in fact. Now, the Lord's Supper is a deep mystery. If you've been in the church for very long, you know that it communicates many gospel truths. It's hard always to grasp all of them at once. It's partly a remembrance of Christ's death. It's a reminder that Christ's body was given and his blood was shed for our salvation. It's partly a source of nourishment in which we feed upon Christ and his benefits in a spiritual way. We also think of the Lord's Supper as holding the promise of eternity. For by partaking of the bread and the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And all of these mysteries are true, but they're not what Acts 2 has specifically in mind. What is emphasized here is that the Lord's Supper is a community dinner. The Lord's Supper is a communal sacrament. It's one of the reasons why we sometimes call it simply communion. Whether the Lord's Supper was celebrated at the temple or in house churches, as it seems in verse 46, the important thing is that the first Christians celebrated this sacrament together. Sharing in communion was an expression of their spiritual communion with one another. As Paul later wrote to the Corinthians, and he put it by way of rhetorical question, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. So you see, the Lord's Supper is a sign of our communion with one another as well as of our communion with God. We eat from this one loaf because we are one body, one community in Christ. One Christian who understood that communion is a community meal was the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli. There were some other things he didn't quite understand about communion, but this he did understand. Zwingli was a chaplain in the Swiss army. And he often watched his soldiers swear their allegiance to Switzerland and to one another before going into battle. The badge of their solidarity was the Red Cross, the Red Cross that they wore on their uniforms. Zwingli suggested that the Lord's Supper has a similar function in the church. We are soldiers in Christ's army. The cross is the badge of our union with Christ and of our communion with one another. And that cross is signified in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. By receiving the bread and the cup, we are swearing our allegiance to our Lord and to one another. We ought to have something of the same sense of solidarity when we pray. First Christians devoted themselves to prayer, and surely this was the secret of their spiritual power. Whenever they had a crisis, when... Jesus ascended to heaven, for example. When Peter was put in prison, we always find them at their prayers. And apparently this was also their daily habit. Every day, this is verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They didn't go there to offer sacrifices, of course, because Jesus had offered himself as a once-for-all atonement. But they did go to the temple to pray, in other words, to worship We see the first Christians worshiping both at home and at the temple. It suggests a balance between formal and public worship and informal and more private worship. 
Every day they gathered at the temple to pray, probably somewhere in the court of the Gentiles, which was able to accommodate as many as 200,000 worshipers. On many other occasions, they met together in people's homes. These were the first house churches. And undoubtedly, what the first Christians discovered is that in addition to their large public worship services, they also needed the more intimate fellowship that only a small group could provide. The same is true today. Really, it is not enough to go to church on Sunday. In order to grow in the Christian life, it is necessary to meet with other Christians during the week to have some kind of fellowship and prayer and Bible study. And with the rarest of exceptions, every Christian ought to be part of some kind of small group, meeting with other Christians to learn the Scriptures and to pray. You see, worshiping with other Christians, whether we do it in people's homes or whether we do it here in this sanctuary, is one form of fellowship. We don't often think of it that way, but really it is. Whenever we worship, we share in the joyful work of glorifying God together. As we read God's Word, as we study God's Word, we join our minds to share in the truth of Scripture. And as we sing, we join our voices to share in God's praise As we pray, we join our minds and our hearts to share in God's friendship. As we offer our tithes and our offerings, we join our wealth to share in God's work. And so fellowship is not something that takes place after the worship service. No, our worship itself expresses our communion with one another. Now, everything we have been saying about the Word and about the work and about the worship of the church was observed by Justin Martyr. Justin was born a pagan but was led to Christ through a providential encounter with an old man by the sea. In one of his writings, he describes a worship service from the second century. He offers it as a sort of typical worship service. This is what he writes, On the day called Sunday, there is a meeting in one place of those who live in cities or the country. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. When the reader is finished, the president in a discourse urges and invites us to the imitation of these noble things. And then we all stand up together and offer prayers. And as said before, when we have finished the prayer, bread is brought and wine and water. And the president similarly sends up prayers and thanksgivings to the best of his ability. And the congregation assents, saying the Amen. The distribution and reception of these consecrated elements by each one takes place, and they are sent to the absent by the deacons. Those who prosper and who so wish contribute, each one as much as he chooses to. What is collected is deposited with the president, really that's the pastor, and he takes care of orphans and widows and those who are in want on account of sickness or any other cause and those who are in prison and the strangers who are sojourners among us. And briefly, he is the protector of all those in need. We all hold this common gathering on Sunday since it is the first day on which God, transforming darkness and matter, made the universe, and the day on which Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. You see, the Christians of Justin's day may have lived in the second century, but they were first century Christians. Like the Christians in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer and selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. 
Now, this kind of spiritual community, whenever and wherever it is established, is always a growing community. First, the message of salvation creates a community from those who are being saved. And then the Christians in that community realize that they're saved for God's glory. And as they begin to glorify God in their work and their worship, other people want to join them. And they, in turn, receive the message of salvation. And thus, this learning, caring, worshiping community always becomes a growing community. It's interesting that the Bible does not say that the Christians devoted themselves to evangelism, although we may well infer that they shared the message of salvation every day. What it says is they devoted themselves to the Word and to one another and to worship, and the more they did these things, the more people started to take notice, and the first Christians then became a worshiping church before a watching world. The result of this, as we find in verse 47, is that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That was the Lord who added the numbers, of course, because only God can save a sinner. And you see, God ordinarily does this saving work through a learning and loving and worshiping church. And here we see the true biblical method of church growth. The church does not grow by evangelistic crusades primarily, or advertising campaigns, although these things have their place and they may even boost attendance, but they are incidental to the real work of the church. The way the church wins the lost is simply by being the church. Whenever Christians establish a community in which they love one another, Or I should say, whenever a Christian church establishes a community in which we love one another, the way that we ought to love one another, and when we care for one another, the way that we ought to care for one another, then outsiders want to become part of it. And almost spontaneous conversions are the byproduct of this kind of authentic Christian community. A learning, a caring and a worshiping community that is growing through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, John Stott has noticed that all of these activities require relationships. This is what he writes. Looking back over these marks of the first Spirit-filled community, it is evident that they all concerned the church's relationships. First, they were related to the apostles in submission They were eager to receive the apostles' instruction, and so a spirit-filled church is an apostolic church, a New Testament church, anxious to believe and obey what Jesus and his apostles taught. Secondly, they were related to each other in love. They persevered in the fellowship, supporting each other and relieving the needs of the poor. And so we discover that a spirit-filled church is a loving, caring, sharing church. Thirdly, they were related to God in worship. They worshiped him in the temple and in the home, in the Lord's Supper, and in the prayers with joy and with reverence. And so a spirit-filled church is always a worshiping church. And then fourthly, they were related to the world in outreach. They were engaged in continuous evangelism. No self-centered, self-contained church absorbed in its own affairs can claim to be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. And so a spirit-filled church is a missionary church. Now, if all these relationships are necessary for vibrant Christian community, 
We must ask if they are present in our own church. Do we have biblical teaching? Do we have affectionate fellowship? Do we have joyful, reverent worship? Do we display the kind of caring intimacy for one another and the kind of joyous reverence for God that create a spiritual atmosphere in which people are drawn to faith in Christ? Now, to some degree, we do have those things. Otherwise, we could not really consider ourselves to be a church at all. But in many ways, and perhaps I would say in our fellowship, most of all, our city is waiting for us to be the church before it decides whether or not it even wants to be saved. We have been saved to glorify God together. And to do that, we cannot live alone and apart. We must learn, we must care, and we must worship together. Father, we come into your presence now together in prayer. We lift our hearts together before you. With one mind, we offer our petition. And we pray that you would make us to be the kind of church that you want us to become. We pray that this would be true in every way, that we would be those who learn the Scriptures who care for one another deeply in a true spiritual communion. And we pray that out of this fellowship, you might draw others, sinners like we are, to be saved into this same blessed community. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You're listening to Every Last Word with Bible teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free. 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.